And now for your listening pleasure, here's Polizzi and Rose, PNR with This Old Marketing. Take it away, boys. Well, hello, content marketers. I'm Robert Rose, and welcome to episode number 93 of PNR's This Old Marketing, recorded on Monday, August 24th, 2015. Well, are you on the list? And no, we don't mean on the list for content marketing world, although you better be on that one. We mean that other list. And if you know what I'm talking about, well, you know what you did. Yeah, that's right. This last week, tens of millions of men, and I guess a few women also, mostly across the U.S. and Canada, felt a cold shudder go down their back last week when a group of hackers pulled and then posted the database from Ashley Madison, a website that connects people who want to cheat on their spouses. The hacker group called The Impact Team, which in other news has spurred all kinds of businesses to quickly change the names of their marketing team working on that whole analytics thing. You know, let's get The Impact Team together, Marcia. They posted a 9.75 gigabyte file to the dark web in a very specific place. I mean, that's what I'm told the size of the file is. I wouldn't know the size of the file. Of course, I've heard from a friend. You know, that's a... Anyway, here at PNR, Joe and I are here to be your significant other show. That's right. We know you don't stray and listen to those other marketing shows. You know, the ones with the social pros and the fast, flashy clothes or the dolled up six pixels that separate or that dominating duct tape marketing or that hot marketing companion. Yeah, we know they're pretty, but are they as pretty as us? That's right. Joe and I are here to bring you the one true love of content marketing and be faithful to all the things digital marketing. We're your high fidelity of content, the one true romance of raves, and bringing you the horrific of rants about something in content. So let's wait no more. Let's slip into something much more comfortable and let's block the door and let's get some Barry White and get this show on. And to help me do that is my friend, my colleague, my good, good friend, and of course, the faithful bridegroom of content marketing, Mr. Joe Polizzi. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just sitting back listening to that intro. Turn on that lava lamp, baby. So how are you, sir? I I hear you're getting getting ready for a trip. I am indeed. I'm headed off to uh, Mexico City, one of my favorite places, actually. I really love it. And I'm not. Uh, We are. Oh, we've got. Yeah. So hopefully it'll be somewhat quiet here in the uh, CMI World Headquarters. We have lots of video taping going on for content marketing world preparations i happen to i happen to know a little bit about this and i'm very excited it should be, it should be, be very super fun. fun yeah it's i well, it's two weeks until it starts i can't believe it's it. so unbelievable i feel like we just did this we're gonna do know, it again even exactly. more people i know it's it's amazing and it's funny because i read i've been reading nick offerman's book uh just to to get familiar with it. what a fascinating guy by the way i i had never realized all i mean i knew the ron swanson character but i've never never got to know uh he just seems like a good dude he'll be up there and then you know so i'm i'm interviewing uh, ron swanson and you are interviewing mr john cleese so which that, i'm terribly excited about i have to tell you yes very much so well you know i mean you that the reason john cleese is speaking at content marketing world is because of you well, no. Said, the reason John Cleese is speaking at Content Marketing World is because of you asked him to. Well, that's true. But World. you gave me the idea, and you said he would be fantastic. And then I saw the creativity speech that he gave, and I'm like, oh, yes. that's perfect. Right. So, I mean, he's going to, and well, I don't want to spoil anything, but yes, it's 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 going to be fantastic. It's really, really, really just going to be wonderful. So we've got two more of these babies, and then we're on to Content Marketing World. So we have some news this week. 
I would we imagine. do have some news this news week. week. Well, some big news for some friends and family of the show. So here's our top story of the week. Isentia, which is a media monitoring company, buys, dun-dun-dun, dramatic music, please, content marketing agency King Content in a $48 million deal. Um, We're going to pair this with another story that comes from Adweek um, about digital shops and the content boom. But basically, the top story here, media monitoring company Isentia has acquired content marketing agency King Content, um, which was known as Media Monitor's until it rebranded in 2013, and they bought the five-year-old agency with our friend Craig Hodges at the helm of that. The deal worth $48 million to its owners, um, and basically the CEO, John Kroll of Isentia, says for quite some time now, we've been looking at how we can work across owned, earned, and paid media. Our clients are already getting a lot of information from us in this space, but they also help us with their strategy. King Content is the market leader in this space. What say you, Joe? What do you think? Well, first of all, big congrats to to all our friends at King Content. Uh, they've been, I mean, even the first content marketing world, they were there uh, from Australia, as they, and they actually just launched the business at the time. So it's it's amazing. Right. It's just been five years and they were able to, to do this. So hats off to them. It's just simply fantastic. I just thought the article, so this is a Mumbrella article that we'll be putting in the in the show, show notes. notes. Right. Did, yep. you, did you know? It, I didn't think the, because for, for those people that didn't know, we made a business decision at CMI to close Content Marketing World Sydney because we wanted to focus on Content Marketing World North America as sure. well as uh, Intelligent Content Conference. They mentioned it in this article again, like there's a demise in content marketing uh, in Australia or Asia Pacific. And I'm like, please, are you kidding me? It has nothing <laughs> yeah. to do with that. We have world-reaching world, world impact, Joe. Uh, I had no idea. I'll have to you know, be, be more cognizant of that next time. No, but I think it's interesting. At the end of this article, too, they talk about – and I'll read this because it's interesting. The acquisition of King Content will now see the focus of potential buyers switch – to other independently owned content agencies, including the likes of Mala Media, Red Engine, Storiation, uh, Edge, and Newsmodo. I just thought, basically, they're predicting that more of this is going oh, to happen. I well, guess. It, I, I think that's a safe prediction. And I think all those, the, the people who run those agencies, some of which whom we know, by the way, um, I think they're all jumping up and down for jubilation at the moment. I mean, because this is just a huge huge feather in the cap of the industry more broadly and certainly as agencies um, more specifically. I mean, and all those agencies, of course, are Australian uh, agencies and, and central agencies, which makes sense given, you know, the, where the article is coming sure. from, et cetera. But it does tee up this other article, which talks about, you know, what is the future of agencies more broadly? And the headline from the Adweek article is, can digital shops survive branded content boom? And of course, we've gone on about our challenges with the words branded content versus content marketing. But putting that aside for the minute, it basically talks about how publishers like BuzzFeed are in full swing, where you see companies like CNN, AOL, Snapchat, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and other publishers starting their own in house content studios to develop content for brands. And is this really? They started talking about the competition with those kinds of publishers versus the competition of like the BuzzFeeds, and sort of that 
idea. And I, to me, it's a really interesting, I guess, question, but more specifically, what we've often talked about in this show is how those content studios are actually competing with the digital studios, the boutique digital studios that we know and love. You know, we've, we've, we've grown up with these digital web media advertising agency, creative technical studios that are creating web solutions and content marketing and marketing and SEO solutions. And here these publishers are now going to compete with this. I mean, do you think this, you know, sort of the acquisition of King Content and sort of like my, I had somebody ask me, they said, well, King Content's like a regular marketing agency. I said, no, they're really not. It's it's a different kind of agency. I said, but does this spell a broader sort of acquisition market for agencies in general or just those agencies that quote unquote get the content marketing thing? I think that you're going to see all kinds of M&A activity on both sides of the house, but really the, the focus, the reason why it's mostly going to be these whatever quote unquote content marketing agencies is because they get the idea of building a long-term strategy and be able to execute a content program over time. Right. Which is very different than what this article talks about. And immediately, so I read this article and I immediately thought of the the idea and we call it endemic versus non-endemic. So if you are, and it's tough, it's it's sort of a blessing and a curse for an in-house publishing studio. You know, you mentioned CNN, AOL, Snapchat, or, you know, join the New York Times and Wall Street Journal, and they're all doing this sort of studio, content studio thing. Right. For the most part, when they're engaging in those kinds of opportunities with brands, they're doing it and they're leveraging their own platforms to do it. Like Snap and uh, not Snapchat, but BuzzFeed. That's what BuzzFeed does, right? They're not going out and they're not saying, we're going to go create American Express open forum on somebody else. They're not doing that. They're saying, look, we're, we understand our audience and we're going to help you get more eyeballs and we're going to help you create content that speaks to our voice. So that's what they're doing. And that's what we call endemic. Non-endemic would be, hey, we're BuzzFeed and we're a business development team within BuzzFeed. And we're going to start selling all kinds of long-term content marketing programs to anybody we can. And they're not leveraging our platform. That's non-endemic. That's a whole different set of skills that's sure. needed. I mean that is that. classic agency services, right? Yeah. Yeah, so it's just interesting that it's funny to, to that they're talking about how hey that they're in direct competition. I don't know if they are. I think they can be. But I got love I'd love to get your take on it. I don't think that they are in most cases because it's a very different set of skill sets and I think that for the most part you're going to get Leaders within a publishing company, they're going to say, look, first and foremost, sell it on our own platform. I don't necessarily want to create a custom magazine for somebody else that's not leveraging any of the tools because that's what they're going in. They're go- if you do a deal with BuzzFeed, I think you're probably thinking, ah, yeah, the BuzzFeed content creators, they're great. And I want that kind of creativity. But really, I want to get in front of BuzzFeed's audience. Right. That's what yeah. they're probably well- thinking. Well, I think – well, and that's – you know, so it's obvious why they do that, right? Because what they're looking to do, as we've talked about a lot on this show, they're trying to monetize in different ways the content that they're creating. They're platforms, right? Mm-hmm. They're, you know, they're, they're seeing the writing on the wall with the traditional sort of business model. And they're saying, how do we actually monetize this in a different way? And creating this content studio is certainly a way to start to do that. I think I, – I, and I completely agree with you. I think one of the interesting things will be to watch more of the – publisher level content uh, studios like a Condé Nast, for example, where it's not just one platform that they're managing, but they have a suite, you know, a portfolio, if you will, of 
magazines and or publications that they could leverage across different ideas, right? So, you know, you look at somebody like a Condé Nast where they've got a Vanity Fair plus other publications, um, you know, that that they can leverage across different audiences and it, they can create solutions that not only stretch beyond just one platform but multiple platforms. Correct. And I don't think there's anything technologically stopping somebody like the New York Times from saying, if this works, if they can figure out a way to make this work, to go, you know what, we can go out and acquire a smaller publisher. Or we can go out and acquire a big publisher. We can go out and acquire a big, you know, another platform and start stitching together platforms um, to create a multi-tiered portfolio of, you know, solutions for and start. I don't think they ever start to offer out pure, quote unquote, agnostic types of services like agencies do. I just don't see them doing that because the new business model for them would be optimize my own house. I'm not going to go optimize somebody else's house. That's, you know, so I, I totally get that. I guess my take on this is that it's a skill sets thing, really, a competency thing, really, more than anything else. They quote in this article, Gary Vaynerchuk, um, who talks about the idea that the opportunity is really about, you know, sort of the democratization of media where the cost structure has really collapsed. And so his quote is, it creates a scenario where everybody can go after the dollar. And I agree with, I don't, I don't disagree with that, but I don't think that's really the source of this. To me, it's a skill set challenge, right? Companies, brands are looking to solve this challenge and actually take this opportunity, either way you want to look at it, and sort of be opportunistic about this content marketing branded content thing. And they see a skill set and a competency in the publishers that they quite frankly don't see in their agency. You know, and, and that strategic service, whether it's, you know, content marketing strategy that they're getting from all manner of different consultancies that aren't their agency. And all the way down to content execution and creation of owned media properties, which they're not also getting from their agency, but they see the opportunity through some of these publishers to create this stuff, you know, even beyond sort of the sort of headlines here, the CNNs, the AOLs, the New York Times, but even like the McMurray TMGs, which you know also well, and the other custom publishers who are doing a great job at creating these types of services and sort of undercutting what the agencies are actually doing. And to me... That will pull the bottom out of some of these services that many of these boutique agencies that are in the website design, blog design, SEO sort of world, you know, which are becoming more and more commoditized, the execution of the build of the thing rather than the strategy of the content in the thing. And that to me is a is a real danger if I'm a if I'm the head of a mid market size agency, I'm 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 figuring this out like now. You know what though? I love the take. Here's what I don't get in uh, in this article. So it says Big Spaceship. I don't know what Big Spaceship does. Big Spaceship founder <laughs> and CEO right. Michael Leibowitz says, if BuzzFeed decided that they wanted to start taking on agency of record relationships, it would violate church and state. How? Yeah, but that's not true. Uh, yeah, How would that? Not tr- that's not I don't true. Get, I don't get that. I have no – because – Here's if I'm an agency, let's it say would that, actually violate church and state less than usually the agency relationship to begin with, because they usually have some level of conflict with other brands that they're working with. But this probably doesn't it doesn't make any that, that just doesn't make any sense to me. So if I'm I mean, you and I have talked to agencies. So let's say I'll give you one example. And I'm not going to say the name, but if, if there's an agency that's like the leading one of the leading digital agencies in the financial services area. Right. Those same agencies right now are looking at publishing platforms to purchase. Right. Exactly. I think that's incredibly smart to do that. Yeah. But we've talked about that. 
I, what, a, yeah, like a thousand times we've talked right. about that. I think that makes perfect sense. So I just think that there's opportunities, you know, the take the here is there's opportunities for everyone, specifically maybe the quickest opportunity we're going to see in M&A of these pure play digital content marketing agencies that really get it, that really understand strategy. But I think it's, there's, I mean, I re- we've called it. We said 2016 is going to be the year of M&A, and I really believe it's, Regardless of what the stock market has been doing over the last week, I think oh, it's dear. going. Yeah, that's really that'll, that'll keep you up in the it, at night, won't it? Holy, it's smokers, a long term been... game, folks. Just relax. I know. Yes, absolutely. Everything is <laughs> fine. Yes, I know. Be fine. Yeah. Well, I was telling someone this morning, just not to go off on too much of a tangent here, but I was telling someone this morning about the stock market. I'm like, they're reacting to the fact that China's GDP is no longer. 10% per year, which is just completely unsustainable. I mean, that's like revving your Ferrari at like, you know, 700 miles an hour and trying to keep it there forever. And now it's down to, oh, a woeful 6% growth every year. It's like, are you kidding me? That's still a Ferrari. That is still a very hot economy. But that's why I think um, it's so funny. Even the thing with Greece. I mean, Greece has the GDP of Detroit. Right. So if Detroit went bankrupt and everything seemed to be going fine, I mean, I get it that it's Greece, it's another country, but it's we have to look at these things in perspective, and a That's lot right. of people lose perspective over a, right. Well, Greece does owe a ton of money. I mean, that is you know. So they does own, Detroit. They, they, yeah, yeah. Well, I love, by the way, I, I love Detroit. Yeah. Nothing wrong with Detroit. <laughs> Nothing. No anyway, Detroit haters. This is not. This, way. this is not. This is not this old economics. <laughs> this is this old marketing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't yeah, don't take any uh, financial expertise here. <laughs> exactly. Uh, You're not buy low and sell high, folks. That's so our here's big our financial stock of the week for you. Yeah, <laughs> stock of the week. <laughs> Alibaba. All right. Okay. Go Moving ahead. along. Spe- well, speaking of finance and economics and all of that stuff, our next story comes to us courtesy of uh, the big red machine called Oracle. Um, and it bought another company. So I'm shocked they bought another company. Um, Oracle buys Maximizer, which broke last week. Um, and Oracle announced uh, last week that it has signed an agreement to acquire Maximizer, a leading provider of cloud-based software that enables marketers to test, target, and personalize what a customer sees on a web page. Wow, that's an innovative solution. I'm sorry, did I say that out loud? Anyway, it's um, Maximizer has been around for a while. I'm sure it's a great, wonderful, wonderful company, marketing automation solution. I've actually seen this solution um, many times. I don't understand other than buying the customer list, which is very impressive. Alliance, HSBC, Lufthansa, Tommy Hilfiger, great customer, blue chip customer list. I don't understand why they bought this technology um, other than acquiring the customer list because it doesn't seem to me to have anything they don't already have. So, I mean, am I missing something here, Joe? Do you see something here that you, that, you can... are? I was going to leave this entirely to you uh, because you are the expert in this area much, much more than I am. I just think Maximizer is a cool name, and uh... yeah, they're you know they but they and they've been around. It's so funny. They, there's one of the quiet ones, right? I mean, they're they're one of the quiet ones that have been around for a long, long time, and it's a fine solution. It's you know it's competed. Um, you know, valiantly against the other ones. I guess my, I guess my take is, and I want you know, obviously, I have zero insight into what happened here, but I just wonder why not another one, right? Why not like why not Marketo? Why not sort of you know, if if you're gonna go, go. I mean, and I get, I mean, I guess ultimately, what this is really a sign of is just a further consolidation of the market, not unlike what we were just talking about earlier. And this is sort of, you know, the, a race to sort of get all of the here's – here's one thing I'll say. And it's sort of under 
cuts everything I just said with, you know, sort of not understanding their acquisition. But there's a really interesting trend here. I've just done a little bit of work here in a research project where I've looked at sort of the marketing automation space. Um, And here's a statistic that fascinated me. So despite the heat and despite the buzz that marketing automation have has, would it surprise you to know, Joe, that marketing automation still only is has penetrated four percent of the market? I know Isn't that, that just amazing? I totally, yeah. And that's and that's where we're still at the very beginning stages of this. It does not surprise me at all. The one thing I will say is that I think Maximizer is more akin to demand base than a marketing automation tool. So I think that there because Oracle has Eloqua. Uh, and obviously, more Oracle Marketing Cloud. You've got Oracle Eloqua. Sure, you've enough. got that yeah, already. I think they're looking at Maximizer as a bolt-on for testing and optimization on personalization of web pages. That's the way that I read it. So yeah. I see that as a bolt-on. And then just overall, this is going. This is look it. Let's just put it, folks. There's so much cash on the sidelines. I have exactly. never. This is this is the real point. This I've never point. seen as much corporate cash on the sidelines. They are looking to spend. I've never seen a thing. I mean, we just talked about the first what first two things, three three things. They're all about M and A going on. That is right. going to continue simply because there's too much cash, and they're going to say, "Hey, does this cash work better for us on the sidelines, or should we use it?" And the tax man and the financial people are all going to say, "You should use it." Because it's better than just sitting here doing. <laughs> why nothing. do they have that voice? Why do the Why do the accountants? Because have that's that the voice. way they talk. <laughs> they you say, should use it. Get your yeah. Get your your shoes <laughs> and your glasses, and we're going to buy, buy. I thought it was a little more like Gollum. Like you should use it, precious. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> no, do your beavis. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, we got to move along. Got to do that. <laughs> okay. We should go to the next one. <laughs> the next story comes to us. This is a this is a fun story. This is something that we both are very very enthusiastic about. When I saw this story come across the uh, our, our shared Evernote, which is by the way how we share stories during the week, folks. We we sort of share an Evernote folder, and Joe sent this in, and I saw this and went, "Oh, this is." <laughs> if Joe doesn't have a, a big take on this, I don't know. I don't know what other article he might. So the headline here is F and W Chairman talks about the company's decisive strategic shift to e-commerce. And it's an interview with FW Chairman CEO David Nussbaum, um, who's been with the company since the mid-2000s. And he basically says in this interview, he saw which way the wind was blowing in the industry and recognizing that print revenue was an inevitable decline. F&W looked for new sources of revenue growth and market space. And they're a publisher. Um, and basically looked to sort of expand. And since 2008, they've grown its e-commerce business and basically grown from one store and $6 million of revenue to 31 individual e-commerce stores with expected revenue now in excess of $65 million for 2015. Um, This is basically, as they said, they've now completely rebranded to a content plus e-commerce company. Um, this is like th- this is like your poster child for the new model, Joe. This is well. First of all, uh, congratulations to F and W. Yeah, uh, I mean, they, I mean, I, a- some people that have been listening to this might know. So David Nussbaum took over as CEO of F and W in I think the beginning of 2008. Maybe it was midway through 2008. I was reporting to David in 2006 at Penton Media. So when I was running custom media at Penton Media. 
uh, David was CEO at the time. Right. Uh, David has a successful exit out of Penton, left the company, probably sat out as non-compete, and then ended up joining as CEO of F&W and went in and saw this opportunity. So I, it's, it's interesting to me. I remember this discussion I had with David. I uh, hope he doesn't mind me talking about it, but I don't think this is this is staggering news here. David's a, a good friend. But when I went in, I first met David probably, I think he took over as CEO in like 05, 06 or something around there. Of, of, and and I'm, I'm talking to him about the business and I'm sharing with him. And he basically looks at me and says, Joe, I, he says, I don't care if you sell shoes. If you're growing revenue, this is really good, you know. Like, and because nobody really, nobody cared about what we were doing at Custom. They just wanted to sell more advertising, as most publishers do. And we were the sort of the poster child or the outsider around custom media content marketing solutions. So David was always like, "Look, however you need to generate revenue, it's okay. That's your job. You're the Skunk Works operation. You're the innovative group within Penton. Go ahead and do what you think is best. And that was great. And we were able to grow really fast because we had, you know, top down permission from David to do that. So David then goes to F and W. This is a f- amazing model because what it shows is if you build a loyal audience relationship with a group of people, you can then really sell whatever you want to sell. And I mean, it's a very simplistic look at it, but that's basically what they've done at F&W. They have enthusiast groups, they artists and knitters and all types of people, outdoors people. Uh, they, they are communities that are built, and F&W has helped to you know, fan the flames of those communities. They've generated ongoing content in multiple formats over time. They've moved from just a publisher to this e-commerce brand, but it's the whole idea of th- we could be talking about any brand. Like F and W is could be any company out there that have been able to do this. They just moved their, they pivoted their model from hey, we just sell advertising and mostly print advertising to hey, we're now an e commerce company. We sell products for the most part. So I just think right. that it's it's amazing that anybody can do this, and the and the opportunity is deep in these verticals, and that's where a lot of companies miss out where they're trying to target two, three, four different audiences. F and W goes in and says, "Here's this one audience. We are going to build this community. Uh, we are going to be the shepherds within that community, and if we build that loyal relationship over time, they're going to buy more and more stuff from us." And the, the last thing I'll say on this is the strategy was. This was really far out in 2009 when David came in and said he was going to do this strategy. And I mean, most media companies are like, I mean, you're talking to publishing people that have been doing the same thing for years and years and years and say, oh, you're not going to do it this. We're not going to sell advertising anymore. We're going to sell products. And they're probably just like, are you kidding me? We're a media company. We're not, you know, we don't sell stuff. We don't sell products and services like an Amazon does. But they stuck to the strategy. And this is kind of the lesson for everyone that's that's going through this process is they stuck. It took them, you know, it didn't happen in three months. It yeah. took it took over a year to get to this level. And he talks about the two assets. One is the people, and I think every CEO would probably say that it's the people, it's the team. The second thing is the, are the databases, and they've been able to segment and look at their databases. Build, I think they've got nine million person database now that they segment in multiple different ways, leverage multiple different newsletters. Uh, and it's just, it's just phenomenal what they've started. And, and anybody, any company of any size can do this. And you could even say, hey, this is how we're going to go to market with our content marketing approach. Well, th- and this is, fa- this is what fascinates me, I, is, <clears throat> is the sort of reverse of this, right? Is the idea, 
you know, we were sent an article um, by a big hat tip here, by the way, to Tommy Walker from Shopify, who sent us in uh, a couple of articles, one that he wrote um, and talked about the study that Mech Labs actually did where they found that 30% of e-commerce companies are using any kind of content marketing as, as part of their marketing mix. And this is something I don't have any empirical knowledge of this. I haven't actually done the research, but I can tell you anecdotally, when I speak with e-commerce companies, they're just now even starting to consider things like content marketing or setting up their own media property. There's, it just seems like e-commerce, which I would have thought would have been a forward-leaning sort of leading edge sort of sort of ad- adopter of the content marketing approach seems to be a real laggard here and it seems to be a real cultural i mean even more so than most a real cultural shift for these e-commerce companies to sort of take this on so i I'm, I'm watching we talked about a couple of shows ago the company down in in Australia, the surf company that did exactly this. We've watched, you know, Thrillist, right? And and it just seems that other e-commerce companies aren't sort of adopting this idea of developing and or acquiring a media property and sort of laying that over their e-commerce strategies. As you know, to the extent, and I, I wonder if it we're going to start to see. I mean, just to our earlier discussion, I wonder if we're going to start to see publishers sort of eat the e-commerce lunch as well, right? I mean, it's it, it's time for the e-commerce people to really get up and 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 figure this out because it's 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 really working. Well, two two of the case studies in uh, in the new book, Content Inc. Uh, one focuses on Goop, and Goop is Gwyneth Paltrow's launch, and she yeah. launched it as a community first and then on the back of that started to sell e-commerce products and the other one is glossier i think we've talked about it on this show where she got millions and millions of dollars and the same thing she was an individual she created an audience over time and now she's selling products and services it's it's just amazing it's it's change right it's different it's it's hard it's hard but it doesn't mean that the reverse can't happen oh exactly i think i mean i was talking about this with with brian clark at at copy blogger where you know i would he was i was honored to be a guest on his podcast and we talked we had this discussion where we talked about the reverse can also work right where you're an e-commerce company and you need to you know you've been in business okay you didn't build an audience first you you didn't do that first what do you need to do you need to go build an audience right you, you can to- reverse engineer it absolutely <laughs> exactly. can and i think that's and that's what we're trying to tell i mean that's what we talk about in the book is hey if you're a startup or an entrepreneur this is the six step process but if you haven't done this before and you already have a defined product or service it's okay you can still launch the product you just right. already know what you want to sell. Now, granted, what will happen is if you get to know your audience better than anyone else, you might learn that the product or service that you offer is not the best thing for that audience. And that's an opportunity, I think. It may scare the crap off of some pe- out of some people, but I think it's a huge opportunity. Well, you may also discover that your product or service isn't, quite frankly, that differentiated from what's out there in the marketplace. But what can differentiate you is the experience. <laughs> if I want to bring my book into it's, this, let's just, it's a book, big old book party right now. <laughs> experience differentiated. I wish somebody would write a book to the yeah. table. We're gonna have book wars here. <laughs> Your book right. is a fan. I just recommended your book to somebody today. They said, "What?" You, they said, well, "I want to know what's going on in with big brands and content marketing. Like, what do I have to read?" I said, "You got to read Experiences. It is the book you have to read." 
Wow. Well, that's very I said, kind of you, I said, then that's, go out and buy content. <laughs> <laughs> well, wait till you hear my rave. I talk about content ink Ooh, a lot in my little rave. This day. Oh, it's just, it's just a big kumbaya that's love it. fest in here. We're going to get Barry White on it. Turn down the lights. <laughs> All right. Okay. Moving onward here to our last show uh, story, uh, which is, I should say, our last story of the show. Not definitely our last show. We are going to talk about Facebook again. Um, this big hat tip to Nanad Senek for sending us this story over. Facebook has taken over from Google as a traffic source for the news, says Fortune.com. Um, the article here says anyone who works for a major news website or publisher knows that social referrals, that is, links that are shared on social networks such as Facebook and Twitter, have become a crucial source of incoming traffic and have been vying with search as a source of new readers for some time. Now, according to new numbers from the traffic analysis service Parsley, Facebook is no longer just vying with Google but has overtaken it by significant amount. What say you, Joe Polizzi? Is this... Do you believe this? I don't know if this is true or not, but the one take that I had is if you look at from a from a paid advertising standpoint, if you're paying for promotion on Facebook, you generally promote content, a story of some kind on Facebook. You don't do that on Google. And I just want, and they don't mention in the article, and I thought they would. I thought that what plays into a lot of these numbers is the fact that you have publishers, media companies that are paying for, actively paying for promotion of their stories on Facebook. And you don't see that on Google where you are paying for mostly product and service promotion on a, with a Google ad. You don't see a lot of stories being promoted on Google. But I don't think they take that into consideration. I think that has a lot to do with it because if you look at Facebook's advertising growth, it's pretty similar to the growth that you that you're looking at in these charts on Fortune from, from I think from Parsley is what they're using. I don't know if that you thought about that. I thought about that immediately. Yeah, well, here's what I thought about. I thought about all of the unidentifiable traffic that comes from search at the moment, which is, you know, I mean, look, I, I'm not, I don't know the methodology of the study that they used. I'm just, I mean, it doesn't, it, something doesn't feel quite right just yet. I mean, I certainly, I totally get what you're coming from with the the, the paid media perspective. Um, and if you start looking at it, organic versus organic, and you say, okay, great, how much organic search traffic are we getting to our site versus how much traffic are we getting from social, from, I, I dare say, you know, certainly, well, maybe news is different, but I, I'm, I'm certain that brands would say, no, 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 we get, we still get way more traffic from, you know, from search than we do from our social efforts. Um, now, as new, you know, this is the kind of thing where, I ask people occasionally to sort of during, you know, I do what I call the walking the dog survey, which is you just ask people like, hey, how do you, you know, how do you, how do you do this or how do you do that? And I ask people, what do you do first thing you roll out of bed? What do you, you know, what, what, how do you check the news? And of course, most of them don't go to Google, right? Most of them go to their social network, either, you know, LinkedIn for business news and Facebook for sort of general news. And they look. And I would guess that there's a lot of traffic that's coming through specifically around breaking topical news if we look at the sort of focused idea of what news is. And you get a lot of you get a lot of linking and sharing through that because quite frankly, that is really where social, if you look at it, for me anyway, it's really where the sort of 
big bulk of it is, right? Something's breaking. The stock market is a great example. My Facebook feed this morning was filled with people talking about and posting worries about the stock market. You know, if something else breaks, you're going to start to see if there's a war, if there's, you know, three guys who stop a terrorist on a train or, you know, whatever the sort of news is, you're going to see that fill your Facebook feed. And of course, you're going to sort of click on some of those news items. Um, And so maybe... But I don't think it, it's it's for breaking news. So if you look at sort of the the half life of a news article, you get a lot of initial traffic for that news. But I think if you look at over over the long term, I'll bet search wins out. That makes sense. No, it makes total sense. I think that because it's almost like because I I listened to an interview from Jay and Jay says you know. Do you, Jay Bear, I'm sorry. And he says, do you go to Google and you say, hey, uh, surprise me. Right, uh, exactly. Right. Um, That's maybe, exactly yeah, maybe right. Maybe throw me some content about hamsters. Or just enlighten or, me. Yeah, you don't go to Google and go enlighten me. Exactly. The thing is, is that you get that surprise content. You get that news about what people are talking about on Facebook. But when you're really researching for information about a product or service or something specific, you're going to search. Or you're going to Google. So it's just right. interesting. Yeah, I would long tail absolutely. So these things can play together. Um, my experience is the same as yours. The majority of brands out there. I mean, this is maybe just this could be just the top hundred media sites that are making majority of impact That's here right. in news. I don't think that this is something that brands can necessarily take away from. I think you're still focusing more more, more on search, but there's an opportunity. I, well, the, I guess I guess my only point is the interesting thing to look at, and maybe they did look at this, you know, so I'm, I'm going off the basis of this article, not actually the study itself. So forgive me if they did actually look at this. But to me, the more interesting question is when you look at a the half-life of a breaking news story versus the sort of overall traffic to a property, you know, sort of, any one article, any one breaking news article, which meets some threshold of shareability and or virality, I would totally buy that fate, that social drives more traffic to any one article. But if we look at the entirety huh, of, of <laughs> the sort of body of content that's created in a month on any one news publication site, only a very small percentage of those are going to be made up of news items that are breaking viral sort of stories. So I wonder in total – if search is actually a greater traffic generator than than social, I get that's my only question. I guess. Yeah, I'm I'm done talking about this now. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. Well, let's talk about something infinitely more interesting. Is the fact that we have a brand new sponsor? We do. Like, it's do we have cowbell? Awesome. Like, what do we play? Like, what we need a new sponsor thing. Like, I mean, you could you could roll into some Barry White, uh, maybe play a little Peter Frampton, something like that. All right. The, this is from our good friends at Studio D. And if you're not familiar with Studio, Studio D, Studio D is Demand Media's new content studio. We've talked about Demand Media actually a lot on this show. And what I love, and I met with the folks there, they're great folks. And what I love about what they're doing is they learned a lot over the past decade plus about content creation and distribution. And they put this into this thing called the Content Marketing Files, Lessons Learned from the Last Decade. I absolutely love this. They actually did a webinar on this about six to six, seven months ago and talked about here's how things have changed and here's what we need to do in our content marketing strategy. You can get this ebook. Uh, from bit.ly slash studio D. 
dash cm files. That's bit.ly slash studio D dash CM files. We'll put in the show notes too. Basically a little description is content marketing is hard. Did you know this, Robert? Did you know that content marketing was not easy? I don't know if you've heard, have you heard that effect? Yes. Well, basically this confirms it. Content marketing is. (laughs) Wow. Okay. Content marketing is absolutely. Drop the mic. It is out. Done. Done. And uh, they say we created this ebook as your ultimate guide to the ins and outs of content strategy, creation, and distribution. You'll find over a decade of data and thought leader tips to help you nail your strategy, track ROI, and publish content a thousand times cooler than that lame haircut you had in high school. A thousand (laughs) times. Well, that that would be a low bar for me, my friends. I wish I haircut. I really wish I had my lame haircut. In, in high school, because that means I would have hair. <laughs> Did you have the rat tail? Would, Did you have a rat tail? I had, no, I, I had, had a, a mullet, tail. man. I had a, oh. I had a mullet all, all day long and twice on Sundays. There it I is. I was rocking the mullet. Anyways, you can learn things like how to prevent content turnoff syndrome, a direct result of not understanding your audience, empower you to own your long-term content marketing strategy. I love that. And then give the scoop on content timing, distribution device, and format. Again, thank you to the folks at Studio D, the division of Demand Media, for coming on as a key sponsor of This Old Marketing, bit.ly slash Studio D dash CM Files. Awesome. I have not had the chance to look at it yet, but I absolutely will look at that asset because I think it sounds amazing. And thank you. Thank you to the folks at Studio D. All right. It is your favorite time of the show, folks. It is our rants and rave sections where Joe and I go off on a little bit of a rant or a little bit of a rave over something that, you know, has us feeling like, you know, we can see that the company wants creative workers. They just need a little time to play. Or that makes us feel like that spurned lover who just found that their significant other's email address was on Ashley Madison. Okay, so I guess uh, you're going first, are you not? Because you have this old marketing this week. I am going first. I have a very have a rave. I hear. I, have, I, ne- I hardly ever do raves. I'm going to do a quick rave because I think this is a great article. It was sent to me this morning, believe it or not, from our VP of Content at CMI, Michelle Lynn. Michelle, thanks for passing this on. It's called "How the New York Times Gets a 70% Open Rate on Its E-Newsletters." <clears throat> Excuse me. A couple things out of this. You probably would not know, but New York Times has a total of 33 e-newsletters now. And what's interesting, and we talked about BuzzFeed last week or the week before, this growth in media companies creating these very targeted e-newsletters. And you'd think with all these e-newsletters, New York Times is going to have a difficult time of getting open rate. They're not. They're getting well above the average of 22% for media companies, in some cases up to 50 to 70%. And what's really interesting is they're they're not just looking at they used to just do it by, hey, here's the section, you want finance, here's the finance newsletter. Now they're looking at all different types. They're looking at things like your lifestyle, they're looking at by columnist, which Robert I think is just amazing. That's where they're looking awesome. at a specific yeah. columnist and saying, Hey, do you want to get Nicholas Kristoff's uh, e newsletter? Here it is. It's adding millions and millions of new subscribers to the New York Times. And this is the best part. They say if you sign up for a free e-newsletter on New York Times, <clears throat> excuse me, you are two times as likely to become a paid subscriber. Wow. This is not is this not what we've been talking about? And it's it's This so is mean, what we've yeah, been talking is... about. So exactly. <laughs> I'm telling you. I know you don't believe me, but it is. The way to go. Um 
Two times more likely. And from the New York Times, uh, the show has come off the wheels, folks. It's, it's done. I think that this is fantastic. I'll put it in the show notes. You've got to check this out. They said that Christoph, the columnist, uh, Christoph, that they created the newsletter for, they promoted it for on social media for six months and got 50,000 signups to just that e-newsletter but regardless i love the behavioral data they have with it this is not just the new york times thing it's what everybody else should be looking at if you sell products or services and i think it's a fantastic piece that you can put in front of your chief marketing officer or whoever holds the budget and saying look if we create a long-term audience of subscribers it can make an impact set the hypothesis new york times is, is getting success with it and i think that it is amazing, Robert, that we're seeing this kind of back to email thing that we've been yeah. seeing over the past uh, couple months. Well, it's an addressable audience, right? I mean, really, anything that gives us an addressable audience is really what we're looking for here. In its entirety. In its entirety. Do you have a rave this yeah. week? I do have a rave. And, and by the way, the reason I say when I when I say addressable audience, it was, you know, that comes from my background in cable TV. Because I mean, it was just embedded into my skull in when I was in marketing for cable TV was the the big advantage that cable TV had over any broadcast. You know, we were just we were just drilled this into our head was that it was an addressable audience. We we knew who those people were, and we knew exactly how many were subscribed. We knew and 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 it was just it was that was it right. So it was all about knowing your audience in the early '90s, late '80s, and early '90s in the cable TV world. So anyway, go off on a tangent. No, and there. you know well, the, the great thing about this is is that they make a point in the article from Digiday here that says they're not doing it as primary for advertising, and that's I think the difference. That's the difference in this new media yeah. approach that we're seeing and we just talked about it from F and W. It's not about the advertising. It's about selling stuff and that's where we're all I mean that's hey, it's it's content marketing. I it's think. content marketing. Yeah. All right. I do have a rave actually. So it is basically uh it, it is it, 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 I didn't plan it this way, but it is sort of completely thematic with what we've been talking about for the show. And 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 it does absolutely take advantage um, and really tee up the idea of your book, Joe, um, Content Inc., which is Ooh. just absolutely wonderful. So the the link that we'll put in the show notes here is to themediabriefing.com, and the headline for the article is why local publishers are well-placed to become service providers. And the article goes on, and I think it's a U.K.-based um, uh, publication and talks primarily about U.K.-based um, publishers, local publishers, and I, I think the article missed an opportunity a little bit to talk more about what it really means to become a service provider and maybe even offering products and different kinds of things. But just despite it, it's a really interesting article and talks about them providing things like you know bandwidth and, and other types of services to a local community. But what it did was it inspired me to start thinking because it also came in concert with uh, a conversation that I had and, and with this weekend. And, and so I'll sort of explain how those two things come together. Basically, so we... We, uh, on the show at CMI, at Content Marketing World, we, we very often will talk about and have for the last as many years, talk about national businesses, global businesses, big businesses, and the opportunity to, for them to sort of pivot into this product development uh, space, media development space, content marketing. And so I was talking to somebody this weekend, and this is a person who owns his own very small production company business. And basically, um, he was—he kept saying to me, I, 
I don't really get this whole content marketing thing. You know, it sounds like an ad. And I said, no, it's media to create and deliver value. And I'm doing my usual content marketing, you know, explanation, benefit to move the business forward and all that. And he finally, he comes to the point because his is an entertainment business. He's in the entertainment business space. And he says, he says to me, uh, you know, I say, well, look, you know how media companies sell products, right? So like Disney creates a movie and then they sell the plush doll or they, you know, they'll certainly have create action figures from Star Wars and all that, right? And he goes, yeah, right. I get that. I said, great. Now media companies, they're creating the show and then they either productize it or they sell the action figure, the toys, right? Right. Got that. I said, so what if we now reverse that? What if product companies start to create media that is wonderful and compelling and then use delay in their product strategy? And he says, huh. Well, that's interesting. And then here's the question that really got him. I said, so why is it that when media companies do this, when media companies create product, we go, yeah, that's great. That's awesome. I'm going to go buy Lego. I'm going to go buy the plush doll. I'm going to buy the character from the movie. But when a product companies try to do this in reverse, we go, ick, they're trying to sell me something. It's, it's icky. It feels icky because now they're creating something that's trying to sell me something. And then he said the magic words because what he said to me was back, he said, well, because media companies are good at it. And I said, right. That's exactly it. The, the, it's all about who has the talent. It's just our, our own biases. We bring these biases forward. When Disney delivers us a media product or when NBC delivers us a media product, we have this inherent bias that it's going to be better than if Starbucks brought us a media product or that Coca-Cola brought us a media product. We have an inherent bias, maybe rightfully so, because some of them are, quite frankly, better at it right now than they are. But this is the shift. This is the evolution. This is the change. What if in the future, the product companies can find the talent, they can develop the competency, they can develop the expertise? And then he said something to me that really struck me as really important. He said, well, it sounds like I need to get good at this too. And, and that's when it really struck me and with this article sort of brought it all together. It's like sm small micro-publishers really down at the local level have the same opportunity that these big publishers and maybe even more so – than some of these big publishers because they have the existing relationships with these uh, with their communities. And they can start to create these productized or service-based offerings that really take advantage of what they do as a publisher, as sort of the relationship with the audience that they have, and do a lot of the stuff that we're talking about, these small, independent, sometimes solopreneurs, sometimes very small businesses – and I guess my overall rave and sort of, you know, I don't know why necessarily this is so, you know, revelatory to me, but it just really is, is that that same opportunity exists at the individual, the small business, the really small business, all the way up into the big business. It's not a money thing. It's not a capabilities thing. It's a competency thing. And the opportunity is changing so fast in just the way that we watched in five years do what King Content did. Change is happening. The opportunities here, grab it. It's not just for the big boys, even at your local level. And that's the end of my rant. Oh, I love that. It's it's so interesting. Well, see, I I don't know if I'm blinded by this or not, but I feel I, – I think I told you the story that I was on a group of, of venture capitalists – uh, we're on stage talking about how they give so much money to these startups and here's how you do it and you have to create a product that's so differentiated and then you'd go to market and you get all this money and all this stuff and I <laughs> then they got to me they got to a marketing guy and I said <laughs> I said I think you're all doing it wrong I said what's your success rate and I talk about that in the new content presentation and we talk about it in the book and they, even with Y Combinator the most successful accelerator on the planet right now has a 10% success rate it's terrible. Right. Right. I said, wouldn't it be better if we 
you know, go out and identify an audience and become the trusted expert in that audience. And then you can build your product and service secondarily, serve the community first. And they're all like, what? <laughs> like <laughs> literally they thought I had two heads. And there was like a couple people that came up to me afterwards and said, oh, I got it. But most of them were like, well, shoot, this is not going to work because it takes patience and time. And we just want to find a great idea and then fund it. Right. Well, that's so. right. That's it. That, did you see Jay? So not to hijack that or anything, but to, but did you see Jay Bear's LinkedIn post where he talked about this whole thing about the, the sort of over over dependence on this word hustle? It was just a wonderful, wonderful oh, post where he talked about out. this whole day, whole idea of like the new, you know, what the new, this new thing on hustle is all about. And he's like, you know, didn't we used to just call that hard work? <laughs> it's, 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 it's only remotely related to what you were well, just talking about. I think that, about, you know, Gary, Gary, so Gary V, Gary Vaynerchuk is out. He has a video every week and he's basically like, you say you work nine hours a day. I work 72 or I, like, I, like, he's always like, I work harder than all you. So, I mean, I get it. He does work hard. He's incredibly hard worker, but you're right. He's all about the hustle. Right. Hustle, it's hustle. not, and, and, but, but to your point, it's not all about how hard you work. It's about how smart, smart you, work you work and how long, you know, it, it's, it's a marathon here. We need to look at it that way. Looking for that quick fix is, is the way to have a 10% <laughs> success rate. Totally, totally agree. The Mark Cuban yeah. effect, I guess we would there call it or something. There All right, go. so I've got this old marketing. I'll be, you do indeed. Yeah, so, so with, I don't know if you know what I've been working on lately in my free time, but I've been looking at um, older content marketing cases in the Northeast Ohio area as we come up on Content Marketing World, and I was looking at the the – the publishing history of Cleveland. And I don't know if you know, Sherwin Williams, the, the paint manufacturer, global painting powerhouse is located here in Cleveland, Ohio. Nice. And it, it was the year 1905 where they first came out with the cover, you know, the logo that's covered the earth. It's the paint bucket going on the earth and it covers the, the earth. Oh, yes, oh yeah. That's so right. very popular yeah. logo. Everybody sees it. Um, you say, oh yeah, Sherwin Williams. That makes sense. They created that in 1905, and of course, lots of av- they were they were advertising in 1910, 1915, and, and a lot of different places, and continue to advertise today. But what I didn't know, and that I learned, is they launched a company newsletter called the Chameleon, which I thought was an interesting name, in 1896. So wow. that's to, to commute. That was an mostly an internal. Uh, newsletter, and then in 1910, it launched a decorating magazine called simply Home Decorator. Now, Home Decorator was a monthly publication distributed specifically to Sherwin Williams customers that covered things like contemporary design and and decorating trends. Now, the magazine continued to be published well into the late 1950s, and I thought about that. And you know this, and we've talked about it a lot. It's in the documentary that we're launching at Content Marketing World as well. The 1950s seemed to be the era that a lot of these content marketing uh, initiatives went by the wayside and everybody started to get into radio and television advertising and whatnot. And that's where, and, and rightfully so in a lot of cases, because if you had some money, advertising was king at the time all the way through, I guess some of you might argue, what, in into some, some cases into today of that's being, right. you know, paid media being the powerhouse, but and I'm not saying advertising is bad, can obviously work and all that stuff, but I just thought it was interesting in this Sherwin-Williams case that I wouldn't say they lost their way, but I that's what I think of when I'm like, oh, they had this really amazing customer communication initiative that 
published really quality, didn't sell, just talked about how created amazing value on an ongoing basis. So I go back and I'm looking through. I'm like, what happened to Home Decorator? What ha- well, Home Decorator magazine was resurrected in 2004, so 11 years ago, and it was renamed Stir Magazine. I don't know if you've seen Stir. I have. Yeah, so Susan Stir, Stir is a fantastic uh, digital and, and print magazine. Um, so I just love that whole case study where – I mean, however, I'm sure they wouldn't say it at Sherwood Williams that they lost their way for a while. That the, the way I look at it, it's a 1910 initiative that's still going on today that had a 50 year break of they were not publishing, but now they've come back and they've focused on creating this amazing community around you know these decorating trends and how these Sherwood Williams customers can do more uh, with the with not necessarily their products and services, but add more value to their lives in some way through decorating trends. So I just love but, that case study and, and more of that to come so so as I'm unearthing and you are too. Like we're both unearthing these really old, amazing case studies and somebody, I can't remember whose name it was, but they, they sent me a note the other day as I, they were saying that the, the content marketing has a much richer history than that of advertising. And, uh, and you know, now we just basically have to get the case studies to uh, to make sure that claim is actually something I don't think it really well, that, matters. I mean, we talked about. But, I mean, I, that's that's it, it, interestingly you mentioned. I mean, that's really when I so my talk at Content Marketing World, you know, which is all about measurement, is going to be exactly that. I mean, I'm ready to make. I'm almost ready to make the argument that it was that marketing originated with content marketing yeah. and then turned into what it is today. I I think that. We're, and I'd lo- I mean, I love that claim, and I think that if we get a few more of these these older case studies, and I'm basically the next couple of weeks, I've got a couple more interviews and things that I'm doing, and we're we're well on our way to making that case. I mean, you better yeah. than me, most likely. I have to, I'm going to have to go into your presentation now, at content marketing world, and actually listen. Well, it to might it. be very good. It well, of course, be. it you never be. know. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I'm off to Mexico City, my friend, and uh, to go visit the wonderful people at Banamex, which is the I can't it's, I can't remember if it's the third or second largest bank in Mexico. Um, to go chat with them about content marketing and have a wonderful, wonderful couple of advisory days with them. And uh, but what? So your head's down, yeah? I heads guess. down. Uh, this week is all content marketing world. Next week is all content marketing world, and then, <laughs> then pre- preparation right. for. Uh, getting everything together, so we're doing videotaping today. Um, boy, yeah, it's just Q and A stuff, general session stuff. Uh, we've got, I mean, you know, we're expecting obviously more than three thousand people, so it's a little bit, it's a big party. Nice, and then doing the book launch there as well. And you're invited to my book launch, by the way. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thank you for that. Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm. But honored. we're excelling your book experiences at Content Marketing World, so it's not all about Joe. I know you'd like to think it is. <laughs> Let's be let's be very clear. It's mostly about Joe. <laughs> it's about the community. Joe just happens to be involved. That's yeah, all. that's right. That's right. That's that's let's that's you just go ahead and rationalize that all day, brother. Okay, folks, that is it for Joe Polizzi. This is Robert Rose signing off. And you know, hashtag us up, folks. We do love those story ideas, especially the this old marketing ideas. Hashtag us this old marketing. And you know, if you have a question, you can also send an email. This old marketing at contentinstitute.com. And if you like this episode number 93, we hope you'll consider subscribing on iTunes or Stitcher.com. All the links that we'll have that we talked about on the show will be available within the actual file itself. And of course, in our show notes, which are available on Saturday at thisoldmarketing.com. Remember, everybody, it is your story to tell. Tell it well. We'll see you next week on This Old Marketing.
This show is part of the CMI Podcast Network. Check out all of our shows at contentmarketinginstitute.com.